I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Welcome to the Power Platform Show. Today's guest, we're going to be talking about Dynamics 365 Finance, which is something that, you know, across my career, I don't know a heck of a lot about. So looking forward to it, looking forward to chatting with her. But uh, yeah, why don't we just get straight into it? Today's guest is from London in the United Kingdom. She's a senior manager at PwC. She has worked with customers, partners, and Microsoft as a Dynamics 365 for finance and operations, technical architect to support and deliver complex ERP solutions and requirements. You can find her on Twitter at Dyn365Princess. So it's D-Y-N-365Princess. Welcome to the show, Kayla Blomfield. Hello. Welcome for having me. Oh, thank you for having me. Not welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have you on. Of course, you're, you know, we're, we're almost... Exactly, what, 12 hours apart? 6 a.m. Yeah, in the morning right. for me, 7, 7 p.m. at night for you. So you're coming off a long day and I'm coming off a uh, a broken sleep with having a nine-month-old baby. Oh, I am sorry. <laughs> That's all good. That's all good. That's my life these days. So it's all good. Tell us about, to start with, just to give context, I always like to open with family, food, and fun. What do those three things mean to you? Oh, family, I am massively uh, orientated into sort of my close family. I don't have a family myself because um, mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a rebel. Um, but yeah, brothers and sisters galore, we're quite a big family, to be honest. Mm. Uh, so I love that, although I am uh, I haven't seen them in a few months because I'm currently in Portugal. So yeah, that was interesting. And then food. What, so you didn't get the invite? Well, uh, no, I'm in Portugal and I've been here for, oh, oh I've got about five months now. I, I had a bit of a, uh, I just decided to up sticks and move a little bit uh, with COVID for so, a bit more sunshine. <laughs> so smart. And you couldn't choose a better country to do it in. Are you in Lisbon or Porto? Oh, so neither. I'm actually in the Algarve. I came Oh, right you're in the, the Algarve. Wow. Yeah. It, How beautiful is that? Oh, it's amazing. It really is. The sunshine does help after a long day. I'm not going to lie, but it gets hot and it really gets hot. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm currently adjusting to that. That's not the normal British weather that I'm used to. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what I love about the Algarve is, yeah, one, the heat and the beaches. And, of course, the <laughs> other one is the the seafood. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a funny because you said food. I'm actually allergic mm. to shellfish. So oh, I no. Have, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, the local delicacies are a bit lost on me sometimes, which yeah. uh, they find quite strange. But yeah, uh, it, it keeps life entertaining, you know, avoiding the shellfish and uh, yeah, I bet the hot pools because apparently I can't go in hot pools either because I tried that no once way. and ended up looking a bit like strawberry. Mm. 
How unfortunate. So you're just doing all your consulting remotely? Yeah, at the moment. I, th- I think with um, with COVID, it's helped everyone realise you can do so much like remotely yeah. rather than having all of that travel that we all used to be used to. And yeah. it just, it really, I think if you're willing to sort of take the punt a little bit, mm-hmm. the flexibility it can give you is uh, amazing. So yeah. I'm just trying to make the most of it because at some point we're going to have to go back to a new version of normal. So, and I will have to go back to those client, client-facing workshops. Yeah. So, uh, if, I, yeah. if I gave you a crystal ball, what, what, what do you see that looking like? I think it's going to be interesting, actually. I think it's hard to predict. I, I do think there will be a couple of days a week. Um, mm-hmm. But during sort of those more talking about what the customer needs and requirements phase, because um, that's when you really need a whiteboard, you know, you want to draw pictures yeah. and say, right, this is how this is going to work. This process will work. But I mm-hmm. think customers are actually really benefiting from the lack of travel as well in that, that it's, it's cheaper for them to get to where they want to be. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't have to pay those expenses and they don't have to pay those fees that they would usually have to pay when we're all having exactly. to tour. And um, we're more willing to do a little bit more as well because we're, we we have more hours physically in the day. Mm-hmm. So we can provide more benefit for them for the same day rate. Yeah. So, so I do true, think so uh, it's like a new mindset that everyone's realized that would have taken much longer to get there if, if it wasn't for this. Yeah. How did you how did you get into technology first of all? What's what was that career path for you? Uh, it was quite funny actually. Um, I, I come from a really remote part of uh, England, which is lots of farms and countryside. You know, um, definitely nowhere near any big cities or technology hubs. And mm-hmm. people always used to say, "Oh, what do you want to be? You should know who you want to be." And I just always uh, I was lucky enough to get a computer. Um, I think when I was about thirteen years old, mm-hmm. and I just really enjoyed playing with the computer and, to be honest, breaking it quite often. (laughs) And so through education, I just started saying, oh, well, I'm sort of good at that. I'm going to just take the computer course because I'm sort of good at that. Um, And it led me into doing a software engineering degree. Mm. And I hated development. Oh, I absolutely hated it. Uh, So I sort of left the university with my degree and said, oh, well, I don't want to be a developer. And ended up just falling into consultancy by accident when I helped um, I helped the Law Society group at First Line Support for their ERP implementation of Microsoft. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was AX at the time. And I yeah. found um, I, there was there was a person who was an enabler for me because I still didn't like technology at this that point. University made me dislike technology actually uh, quite a bit because I just knew I didn't want to be a developer. And he just really showed me the empowerment of consultancy and how you can really help people and fix these problems. And I just fell in love with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just kept going in and went a little bit out of control <laughs> to where yeah, I am yeah. today. Wow. So, where yeah. you, you mentioned AX there, mm-hmm. and uh, which have, you know, traditionally would have been predominantly on-premise. And now tell me like because i come more from the other side of the dynamics 365 house and and i don't have a lot of experience on the erp side where we stand right now with dynamics 365 finance is it a uh, do you do you subscribe do you um uh, would you call that a saas solution uh, an iaas solution or a pas solution from a, how it's um hosted it depends how honest you want to be so i want to be really honest yeah, <laughs> not, not, the, the, not the Microsoft blurred line honest, but exactly the official honest. Yeah, officially it's sold as SaaS. 
you know. Yeah. But through implementation, the environments mm-hmm. you build to support it are mm-hmm. built to a page you go as your subscription. So I asked. And under the hood, because it's actually it's quite cool when I was at Microsoft because I'm, I'm so nosy. I am absolutely nosy. I managed to get into everything. I managed to nice. find some sort of, you know, some internal threads about how they were trying to evolve and adapt that sort of on-prem built infrastructure into true SaaS, you know, cloud yeah. native. Because under totally, the hood, totally. it's not cloud native still. You know, it doesn't auto mm-hmm. scale. You, all that cool stuff you've got when you're on Power Platform and customer engagement. You, you know, if a customer needs more processing power to an extent, you can, it, it's just a, available to them. You know, that scalability. Yeah. We don't have that. And, um, you know, they're still heavily investing in trying to make that happen. Um, and mm-hmm. there's still significant changes that need to be made to make that happen. And I think it's what makes ERP so expensive because our yeah. hosting costs for the infrastructure, because it's still basically on-prem just in the cloud, means it is really expensive. And, um, you know, hopefully when they do get there, they, they are, as everyone, I suppose, would know generally, they're trying to move it to one official platform, but they're recognizing that, the, the sheer transactional volume and the processing power of the back office solution just isn't compatible with the infrastructure of the power platform and dataverse as we know it today. Yeah. So they're having to try and find a little bit of a middle ground. Mm, um, like a hybrid. Yeah. And and that's that's gonna take a long time and a lot of money for them. And and obviously the more at the moment the the back office tool set, because of all the investment they've done, it is actually really coming to the market and really making a lot of waves now. And the more customers they bring on, actually, the more difficult it is to do that because, yeah, you know, CE is on shared infrastructure and Power Platform is on shared infrastructure. Actually, the ERP, every customer has their own infrastructure. Yeah. So, you know, totally. it's much more complicated to go and retrospectively fix these things without impacting that customer. Yeah. And of course, it's mission critical for any organization that has oh, data in the ERP. Yeah. Tell me, just and, and loosely here, I'm not going to get you audited or anything. <laughs> um, take a client that you've recently worked on, um, no names, of course, but tell me what, you know, how many servers are we talking about on Azure would you be deploying for that ERP uh, customer? So maybe give me a, a concept of sizing or something, but... Just give me a feel for how much uh, infrastructure but need, as an Azure infrastructure needs to be put in place for a, whatever your example is, deployment. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose your, your, your average size customer where, I don't know, we're talking maybe a couple of hundred users, shall we say. So uh-huh. I don't know, that's not really average size, but it, it, it if we're saying about 500 users, because we can do it in licensed users, right? We would ultimately, you don't, because it is still SaaS, your production environment, uh, we as a partner don't really get to see how big Microsoft make it. We can tell generally, but, you know, there's always, they do have Azure SQL database, which is great because that's finally actually, you know, path infrastructure. Um, but then you will have your reporting servers, which are IS. You will have your processing servers, which we call AOS servers. They they are IS as well. So generally, you'd be looking on that production infrastructure alone between six and seven different components, I would say, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. that sort of customer. 
And what catches people by surprise, and this is the contrast, what I find when we're talking to customers, because I, I do a lot of work with customer engagement at Power Platform as well, um, is that actually when it comes to customer engagement at Power Platform, you don't touch Azure subscriptions really at all. Um, you don't touch any of that components because the Office portal, you, you know, that's how you manage your user accounts. If you want to do interfaces, well, you just use the connectors. Um, you know, and in, if you want to build an environment where you've got this cool power platform admin center that just sort of does it and this, this magic thing just works. So when we come into a customer, they, they've brought Dynamics 365, they've done customer engagement first, they come to ERP and all suddenly I'm having to talk to them about IS infrastructure and PaaS infrastructure and all these security and controls. And they're just like, what? And, and that ha- that's what's happened on my most recent customer. They're like, why is this so complicated? Um, and it's just because we've not managed to catch up yet. Uh, customer engagement managed to start its journey to the cloud. I think it was three years earlier than the ERP. So you're, we still see that difference today. And, you know, it, the shock that that gives customers and anyone then trying to transition between the two. Mm-hmm. Do you see that in the future? Because, you know, there's this whole, there's been, uh, I'll call it shadow discussions around the, the, the platforms coming together. And I don't see any sign of that happening any anytime quickly, although um, a, a lot of people would probably want us to believe that it was. Do you see that what would more happen is that uh, the way um, finance uh, is currently distributed will continue as is, but there will be a, um, how we say, uh, an integrated integrated version of uh, Dataverse where the information that needs to be perhaps consumed by other apps in the ecosystem would be mirrored in that system. And so the, the two would be cl- tie, you know closely linked, but it wouldn't be like you'd be putting finance on Dataverse as such. Mm-hmm. Do you, know, do you know, and I, I've actually had this conversation a lot lately, and I think Microsoft want to do that, but I don't think their customers do. So right. think, think about your average CRM instance. You know, there are mm-hmm. a number of customers that have multiple, and, and yeah. actually there are elements of legitimate rationale as to why, because they have different types of customers. So... You know, one of the areas that I'm working in quite heavily at the moment is, uh, is is an organization that manages tenancy. Now, that organization, yes, they want customer engagement and they want the finance app, but their customer mm-hmm. engagement is to manage their tenancy financials and their finance app is to manage their business to business, you know, that, you know, that more formal what we would expect. Mm-hmm. If you use, if, if Microsoft decided tomorrow it's all going to be natively integrated and nobody has a choice. Well, suddenly both of those pools of customers are going to be mixed and all, all of that financial information will be mixed. And there are a number of reasons why organizations don't necessarily want that. Totally. Mm. So I, I, I think there's always going to be a difference and, and it's going to be interesting to see how that's facilitated. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I, I can't even figure out how that would be a the right way or how people should go about that. I, I think, um, and you know, and we're, that's just one industry. We, you know, we're not even yeah. looking across all of them, which these systems are trying to facilitate. That's why I wonder that they won't, they won't move it to Dataverse, but let's say they will decide that, oh, well, as in whoever's architecting the solution would could decide, you know what, these number of fields are going to be consumed by other applications, kind of like what we've got with mirroring or dual write, things like mm-hmm. that, would be 
automatically available inside Dataverse, as in if you specified them as the architect to be. And then just those fields, tables, etc. would be accessible, but, you know, business as usual for the rest of the finance system. Yeah, and, and I do think that is a, a bit where it's going with virtual entities as well, um, because mm-hmm. it means you can start doing that a little bit more. Um, I, you know, maybe someone's brain who, who's bigger than mine can figure out how to sort of square the circle. Um, But I think where we are today and where we'll be in five years' time, I don't think we'll see them on a shared platform or um, a more enforced mapping between the two. Because before you even talk about finance and sales, for example, you also have to talk about first-party and third-party apps on Power Platform because of those conflicts as well. So if, if we really want to keep the Power Platform in a way where it is as flexible as we see it today, mm-hmm. then actually we need to move away from this idea that all of these integrations will be native and standard because there is a, then an, another in, implication of any custom apps suddenly using these standard tables, which we Microsoft are also saying, well, these standard tables are there for a reason for your industry-aligned data models. Yeah, yeah. Def- definitely some complex thinking to go in there. Tell me about the Dynamics 365 finance ecosystem. And and I, w- I probably want to look at it from a couple of different lenses. Tell me about it from how you see Microsoft look at it, um, being that you have that experience inside Microsoft, how you see partners and, and customers, but then also ISVs, uh, the wider community. You know, I, I haven't noticed the finance uh, community, if you like, um, maybe be as vocal or grow in to the degree that I have seen in the power platform space or the first party app space? Yeah. I mean, from a community perspective, to be honest, it doesn't exist. And, and I had this mm-hmm. conversation with Microsoft. Um, I'm not sure they appreciated it because it was more public than they'd have probably liked. But where they've, <laughs> where they've changed the name of the, the back office solution so frequently, what little community it had became invisible because we don't have an identity anymore, even still today. I mean, they're now trying to say, okay, it's called finance. But if I look on Google and I type in Dynamics 365, most of that is customer engagement. And, you know, I need a way to group the back office solutions because a Mm -hmm. user group isn't just going to be a finance user group. It needs to be a finance supply chain, human resources, you know, uh, e-commerce. So we, we, we're struggling with no identity. And I, I, to be honest, I, I'm trying to build up that back in England. Um, and I'm just calling it ERP. You know, yeah. it's, it's not an official name, but we need something. And when you have those conversations with them, they're a bit shell-shocked, obviously, because they love their uh, branding engine. So for, for them to be told that it's not working very well, I'm not sure they're very happy with me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But, um, what, what what about the the breed of of people in the community? And what I mean is that um, my perception might be wrong. They always seem very busy and not in a position to kind of collaborate or share mm-hmm. their their knowledge as much as what I've seen in that um, the you know as I say the CE or the power platform space. Yeah, you're absolutely correct there, um, and it's something I struggled with when I was coming into the industry as well. Um, mm-hmm. Historically, for some reason, and I can't, you know, I to be honest, I'm not sure why. It's mm-hmm. knowledge in back office is seen as power, and there's a lot right. of very much power play, and I am the most important or knowledgeable person in the room. 
when it comes to back office. Um, so there's a lot of that, even in within partners, let alone outside of partners across the community. Yeah. So that that is one of the things that we're trying to work on to say, actually, everyone does better if you collaborate more and bringing more of that sort of sharing mindset to the table. And, and the next generation are actually doing much better. They, they are mm-hmm. really coming to the front. We're, you know, we're getting more sessions starting to come. I think it's just, it's, it's, I think it's still part of our transition to the cloud and transition to a new way of working. And to an extent, it won't be until some of the more experienced people move out of the industry that we'll see it really come to a forefront. Um But there's a lot of really key and strategic players starting to try and change that perception and they are coming out there to be more collaborative. And Mm -hmm. um, it's just trying to always put the focus on them and because once someone starts, then everyone else is like, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, that's cool. And it it starts building it more and more. So, yeah, I I don't, for for my experience um, and trying to be in the community and feedback I've had as well, because I end up talking a lot to anyone in the CRM or in, in the Power Platform community. They sort of say the same. They're like, oh, you're one mm. of the nice <laughs> the nice back office people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So we'll get there. You know, it's, it's just a bit of a journey, I suppose, um, that technology as a whole is going in to be a little bit more facilitating and communal. Yeah. Also, I mean, it, it's a big product, right? As in, oh. I remember you know, been uh, working with another partner going in, doing a joint pitch around um, finance. And uh, back then it was CRM. And, you know, I rocked up um, to do the pre-sales for the CRM, which was, um, I don't know, it was probably about a three, four hour pre-sales demonstration. And six ERP, as in Dynamics 365 AX folks, showed up and, um, uh, you know, with this customer. And I was like, whoa, there's just one of me covering CE, you know, that was um, sales uh, customer service and marketing. And what I couldn't get over is that each of these individual uh, people had their part of the tech that they knew, um, yeah. that they focused on, and therefore they did the pre-sale demo for their area. And I was like, wow. So it's there's a lot of, if you like, very deep siloed knowledge then even within the application based on what area that you're working, you know, or using the technology for. Yeah. And, and to be honest, it has to be. Um, mm-hmm. the, the I can probably name on one hand the number of people I know who I would say could walk in on any module and do a demo justice and answer yeah. those you know those niche questions that they will be asked for a customer. The product is so complex in its makeup and in the industries and and the requirements it's trying to meet. And so configurable because it is, mm-hmm. you know, it's astonishingly configurable that you, you just can't know it all and you can't know these different modules. So usually you'll have someone who specializes in retail or finance or yeah. supply chain and actually it's getting worse. I mean, three years ago, you would have had people who said, Do you know what, I know all of the modules except HR and retail and that, you know, that used yeah. to the, the yeah. project operations and the finance and the supply chain people used to sort of bundle together and then warehousing got much more complicated and now project operations you know it's an interesting space there now is is it front office people trying to focus and learn the accounting side or is it the accounting side trying to learn the customer side the the application from the investment Microsoft is doing 
is brilliant because the functionality is exploding. But they are now becoming ultimately a solution in their own right. They're, they're starting to try and become something that isn't a general ERP solution, but actually each in their own right are fighting to become a best of breed solution. And that's where then you have to have all these different skill sets and these different people because it's just, it's just, it moves, the, the solution moves too quickly and um, the functionality is so broad it just wouldn't be possible for one person to do it justice. You know, you, you mentioned the different areas. Commerce um, seems to have had a lot of airplay in the last 12 months, Dynamics 365 Commerce, with the with COVID. Businesses are realising that they absolutely need to be able to transact online. Are you seeing that in the UK or, or even in your broader view of the world? Yeah, absolutely. And part of that also is because of Microsoft for the last two financial years is predominantly being their strategy. So To, to push commerce? To, yeah. to get it in market? Yeah. Yeah. Because, gotcha. you know, the solution used to facilitate your sort of brick and mortar shop and it used to facilitate yep. your product management and your sort of back office functionality mm-hmm. in retail. But it was only... Um, last year because it was ironically when I was at Microsoft they started releasing it and I, I was helping doing the rollout that they brought in an, uh, an e-commerce solution for that online sales because it used yeah. to just be oh well we can connect to them um, so they brought it in and tried to say I know we can do this as well uh, and as with any new solution because it was brand new from Microsoft it has had, it's had a bumpy road it's had a bumpy mm-hmm. road they're still figuring stuff out um, yeah. but for businesses and organizations and some of the success success stories we've seen of international companies taking on the, the, the retail and the, the online commercial engine is actually is significant. You know, people have said to me, oh, is it just like little companies that are doing this? And actually, it's more often it's not. It's the big companies because they're the ones that are saying, well, do you know what? I will do finance. I will do um, all of the back office, the brick and mortar, the e-commerce. I'm going to get it all up and running together. And I'm going to get a beautiful discount because I'm such a big company with loads of licenses. Um, So actually, for the smaller companies, they're saying, actually, I'd rather just stay with Magento because I know what it is and it's cheap. Yeah, totally. And or, you know, or Spotify, sorry, I was going to say Spotify, Shopify, any of those are are designed for people to rapidly up and deploy that are uh, smaller in nature. But of course, Microsoft do seem to be pitching this more at the top end of town, you know, um, the fact that it sits under the finance part of the organization would speak to that because it's not really finance has never been an smb product no and and it's still not to be honest i mean if if at some point they fix the architecture we're talking about maybe it could but that's that's why business central exists you know they're not they're not trying to everyone used to say oh well is it the erp or is it business central which one's going to win the battle well now in in microsoft they are comfortable they will always have both because they both have different jobs. They have both have different market preference. And Business Central actually has seen significant and astonishing growth through COVID because anyone who was on like legacy systems and things like that, they're all moving onto it because you can get it yeah. up and running in, to be honest, a couple of months. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about the the ISV ecosystem around it. You know, over the past, let's say, five years, I've so slowly watched in the CE space the the ISV ecosystem die and become um, gobbled up, if you like, by Microsoft's innovation. And mm-hmm. and I don't see many newcomers coming to the space. 
apart from maybe doing ISV solutions that are very industry targeted and then they really want to, they're not so much an ISV I find in that case because they want to actually handle, engage with the customer as well for quite a bit of that journey. It's not like they're letting another partner implement that solution. But my understanding has always been in, in finance, there's always been a very rich ISV ecosystem. Yeah, and to be honest, it's a bit of a mixed bag. There are so many ISVs because the native functionality used to be quite limited, you know, especially in those AX days. It it was never trying to be the best at anything or everything. Like finance was fairly good, but, the, you know, it, it was because you were trying to get it all on one solution. that That's why people start to buy it. So there was a massive amount of ISVs. And we still have a significant number of ISVs today, but the richer functionality means actually it's very common for customers to not need them now. And mm-hmm. where the platform keeps changing because we're trying to make it more stable, we're going to get all these auto updates rolling in. Um, what we're tending to find is ISVs, uh, where they can't keep up or they're refusing to keep up with how Microsoft are changing the direction of the ERP, mm-hmm. they're, they're just not willing to invest. So then as partners, we don't really want to give them to our customers because yeah. ultimately, you know, if you were being pragmatic, because of the success of dual right, because of Dataverse, the power platform and finance now being able to integrate properly and the licensing changes, any ISV should be looking to migrate themselves onto a power platform and power app and stop yeah. customizing the application directly. Where there are a number of ISVs that are out in the market today, they still have literally the same code that they had back in 2012. And yeah. at some point, yeah. they're going to have to do that investment to fix it. But it's so expensive for them because the, the you know the direction of travel keeps moving. They, they they're always hesitant to, and they just do what they have to, not what actually they should strategically do. So that's difficult. Yeah. Tell me about the partners in the ecosystem. Are you what are you seeing um, successful partners doing? And, and I'm talking about a mod, the modern partner, maybe more than the traditional. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in the traditional space, what are you seeing them not doing that they probably need to do? Yeah. So the strongest partners, because when I was at Microsoft, I was working with the partners. The, the strongest partners are building out ultimately industry specific, industry targeted. Predefined business processes and saying, Oh, do you know, we know your industry, we know what you need. We've already decided the system's configured like this. We'll walk yep. you through that and we'll give it to you because actually, then you can get these deployments done. I think, you know, in sort of seven, eight months, depending on what modules and how much data and if the customer wants to move away from the standard path. But it's more of a Customer is buying for a fairly static price, predefined application off the shelf configuration. And then then when they walk through, oh, actually, I want to change this process a little bit. The only change to that budget and that timeline is because, oh, there is this sort of change request in it. So both customer and partner, it makes everything more predictable, repeatable, cheaper, because it's all already there. And it's just about that business change. So anyone who's going on that journey, you're seeing them actually really considerably come to the front of the market because a lot of the customers are saying we don't want to be special anymore we've got a heavily mm-hmm. customized sap instance for example that we can't we haven't upgraded it for five years because it's too complicated we want to be simple we're not that complicated um so that's where you know the stronger partners you're seeing them trying to go but when you talk about them you know the other partners there was one situation actually that got escalated to me when i was at microsoft 
And there was one part customer that we went in that escalated, you know, they had lots of issues, they had issues with partner. And because I was supporting partners, they asked me to go in and have a look. The partner had estimated, I think it was 2,000 different customizations. They swapped to another partner. It's their choice. We would never advise that when I was at Microsoft, you know, so it's down to the customer. And they went live with three minimum customizations. It, you know, there's some partners that are just not finding ways. When a customer says, I want this system to tie my shoelaces, the partner says, yeah, okay, here you go, pay for it. Yeah. You're not, not that push right. So actually you should be doing it this way instead, or you should be using it for that instead. Um, so it's just, yeah, that's, that's sort of the difference, but you can still see it so clearly at the moment. So, um, yeah, that, that's sort of what it is, especially within Europe, what we're seeing. Yeah. What uh, Final question that I really want to ask around Dynamics 365 Finance is where is the new generation of consultant coming from that works on this product? They, they are ironically coming much more from your sort of core business. Within mm-hmm. the industry, whenever I actually go and meet or interview anyone, um, one of the things, and it's sort of similar to myself because I started customer side, you yeah. have so much more capability to understand and connect with your customers. If you've been to that customer side, you understand their problems. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and it's not even necessarily the same industry. It's just, you know, the fact of how difficult it is to get these things up and going. And, uh, you know, from a customer side of an ERP program, you can distinctly tell a difference to someone who came in ultimately through like a graduate scheme into consultancy because are they better i think it's different skills uh-huh. to be honest i you know i try because uh, i mentor i do try and give people that understanding but generally yeah. speaking you progress faster if you've got that understanding from customer side than if you're trying to gain that understanding from partner graduate schemes and yeah it's just because of the way partners start you off and they take you mm-hmm. through the cycle. You just don't have that deeper level of understanding of customer businesses and customer processes that they have to do. Yeah. So, so would you, if if you were to bring in folks, um, what typical qualifications are they? Like more accounting background, people that work in biz ops. Uh, are they, you know, maybe tax experts, law? You know, what what are the what are the common um, quals or experience? More probably more, I'm asking in 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 industry. Maybe not with the technology, but they've mm. let's say whatever in their business they've been heavily embedded in SAP. Maybe you know, for five or 10 years. Yeah. What what t- t- typical backgrounds are they coming with? Usually that they have been part of a customer ERP implementation and, and not necessarily yeah. Microsoft, you know. Um, someone who is part of an ERP implementation, they've, they've done the training guides. They've tried to manage the testing. They've tried to understand the business processes and help change the, how the business works. You know, I have friends who I know have been, uh, you know, they they have a standard financial role, but they've actually been critical team members in seven, eight ERP implementations and they jump through customers because they say, oh, no, but I'm bored now. I actually enjoy this project change. And I just say, oh, you're, you're crazy. You know, you could come to a partner and you would probably almost immediately earn more money, um, you know, and you would get this as part of your normal role rather than, you do it because you enjoy it from, but you're being hired to be a, you know, 
cost accountants. Yeah. So and those people, if you find them, they are absolute gold dust, and you just bring them in and you can onboard them. But usually, it's a bit of the fear factor, and and that's why it, with interviews and with job specs, we I I personally try to really tear them down to their basic now because if you make it too much of a traditional consultant job specification, those people will never in a million years apply. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I want to switch gears and talk about PTA, Mm -hmm. Partner Technology. Is it Architect? Yeah. So that was your role for some time within Microsoft in the UK. Mm-hmm. Tell me what what does that what's the role's responsibility in how it engages with partners? To be honest, it, it, it was still up for definition, um, and, and that's one of the reasons <laughs> I went and why they hired me. Because I, as I asked them the same thing, and and they were recently reorganising what they call the one commercial partner team, which is ultimately responsible for partners' success. So the one commercial partner team is supposed to support any of your partners across any technology that is Microsoft technology, mm-hmm. uh, yep. supporting them on sales, increasing sort of their revenue, their access to the new products, encouraging them to sell more. So, and, you know, it's Microsoft basically working with their core sales engine, which is their partners. And um, they recognized all of the people within the one commercial partner team were non-technical staff, but they kept getting asking and escalations from partners that they've got problems with the technology. And they had nowhere to send those, you know, if a project was going wrong or there was an issue with it, the solution, and they, they didn't have access to anyone in the wider Microsoft ecosystem to help understand where the problem was or deal with the issue, and, and like licensing. <laughs> no one knew how to answer yeah, the licensing yeah. questions. Um, so they, Microsoft said, okay, well, let's hire some people with technical skills and mm-hmm. who understand the application. Let's, let's see how that helps because we can start, you know, a whole new sort of sales and support engine based on these people who do actually have technology specific skills. And when I was there, they hired a couple of different personalities, actually, some who were more really deep in tech you know, who did just want to sort of get into the nitty gritty or be a bit more pre-sales. Um, and, and and the role I ended up doing is I ended up getting parachuted a lot into the problems because, again, back to the, the implementation and where I'd done customer, I'd done partner, um, I understood a lot about business change and program management and that more end-to-end, not just technology lens. So I used to end up helping on a lot of the programs in the UK that were you know, the most at-risk customers who are really struggling, partners who are really struggling, and going in to sort of say, okay, well, this is what's wrong, and then work with everyone to say, this is how we fix it, and sort of say to partners, okay, I think you can probably improve how you do this by doing it that way. So when we talked earlier about the standard industry-aligned process methodology, I was talking to them about that to say, okay, for this specific technology, this is the best way you can implement it. This is your best practice. This is how you should be going to improve your sales, your success rate, your project quality delivery. And and it was a lot more of that rather than just that sort of standard pre-sales to partners to enable partners selling to customers. And we'd start bringing in what I would call real partner support. So, in you know, you would have worked with a lot of partners and, once again, no names. But tell me, what, what differentiated great partners? What were the patterns that you saw in great partners as opposed to uh, not so much? Self-evaluation. Mm-hmm. 
So there are some partners that were really great, even internally to Microsoft, knowing how to sell themselves. And because Microsoft is quite disjointed internally, you would have, say, the partner management team saying, oh, yeah, they're great. And you'd have the sales team saying, oh, yeah, they're all right. And then you'd have all of the delivery and the fast track teams absolutely despising them because every single customer went wrong and you would have this customer success unit absolutely despising them because all the projects went wrong and when every, every partner when it came down to it was ultimately those sort of top levels of the organization some of the members were too stubborn to see that there was ever anything they could ever possibly be doing wrong or they didn't want to ever admit they were doing something that that might be wrong or maybe changing or they need evolving and it just yeah. led them to become more and more stagnant. And the longer it goes on, the worse it gets until it got to the point of suddenly you were seeing partners where, you know, they'd just cut out the top of the uh, exec team and start again, but that doesn't necessarily fix mm-hmm. the problem. Yeah. Because it becomes like an ingrained culture. Um, whereas the partners that were more willing to be evangelistic and have these people who were sort of more of a give it a go and let's try it and, oh, that's interesting, or, or have feedback and say, oh, I like that idea. They're the ones that you could see, you know, they could move mountains if they just had the right support and guidance. Yeah. Final question, if we get into quick fire questions. <clears throat> mm-hmm. What what do you see as uh, uh, when it comes to culture within a partner business that has to be fostered on purpose? Mm-hmm. What are what is important elements that you see must be in a modern partner culture? has to be collaboration. I mean, I mean, I always say in the teams that I build and um, the organisations I work in that if we, we achieve everything because we run on sort of borrowed promises in the sense that I'm struggling one day and I'll just reach to my colleague and go, oh, do you mind quickly picking this up? And then the next day they'll come to me and do you mind picking that up? Mm-hmm. The, ultimately, you know, you can be allocated to a project or some pre-sales opportunity or a piece of work, but sometimes mm-hmm. we all have this moment where oh we're struggling if you don't have the type of team that can reach out to someone else and say god do you just have half an hour you can give me today to help this if you don't have that or someone so well no i'm 100 percent allocated to this i can't physically go and do anything else if you have those sort of people you will always struggle whereas if you have a team that sort of says oh i should be doing that but no i'll give you these 20 minutes because then you can call those 20 minutes back later and you know just all work on sort of, oh, well, you owe me a pint or I owe you a glass of wine. If that, that culture, it means you, when the things do get really rough, which every partner has those moments, uh-huh. You, uh-huh. what ultimately is happening is you're all ready to jump in the boat together and make sure it lands. And um, nobody feels like they're the only one doing all the work because everyone is ready to go and support and help out and everyone does without having to do an escalation for resources, for example. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Thank you so much. Now, I, I always like to wrap up with uh, some quick fire questions. And this is, I mean, as you know, I didn't even get half my questions out here. It's been so <laughs> interesting um, chatting with you. Okay, you ready for your quick fire? Mm-hmm. Actually, before we go there, is anyone you would recommend for the show in future? Mm. That you think they've got a good story to tell that's in the ecosystem? Have you had Keegan on? No, she's so she's very new to the community. Well, when I say new, she's she did, she was in recruitment, right, and has moved across into yeah it, into consulting. Yeah, and and her journey. Uh, I mean, um, her journey is quite interesting. I I I've spoken to her just a 
you know, a, a couple of times. And, and she's still also a bit in the middle of it. So I think yeah. it's a good perspective um, to have of that journey. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I met her at the first Scottish Summit. So, yeah. Um, great. Good. I will, I will get in touch with her. That, that's a great idea. Okay, quick fire. Who in life inspires you to be better? Mm. Oh, my God. Probably my dad. Yeah. Nice. Dad. What have you bought that you love so much that you'd buy it again? A pink unicorn. <laughs> a pink unicorn. Yeah. It travels everywhere with me. <laughs> As in like a little soft toy? Uh, it's not very little. It's, it's like a giant teddy bear. And I literally is, yeah. It, it, I, I, it travels the world with me. I, I have to have bigger suitcases all the time because I bring the unicorn. Wow. I've got, I've got a unicorn wig <laughs> that uh, that was provided me by Mr. Dorrington. Nice. Yeah, I had to do, I had to judge a competition in the UK a couple of years ago <laughs> and uh, I did a video, the judging of it with this pink unicorn wig on. It was very cool. Um, what's the wildest party you've ever been to? Oh God, probably the one the other week on the, on Farry Beach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we uh we, it was when the bars may possibly have still been closing early, so we I, over the bar we decided to buy a couple of uh seven zero point seven litre uh, bottles of vodka and yeah. just drink it straight, and it ended up quite entertaining. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> yeah. The best day, the best time of parties, and probably like that. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll make sure that uh, I tag you, etc. in this mm-hmm. when we go live. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Business Application, MVP Mark Smith, otherwise known as the NZ365 guy. If there's a guest you'd like to see on the show, please let me know. Reach out via LinkedIn. Messenger is the best way to get hold of me. If you'd like to be a supporter of the show, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash NZ365 guy. Stay safe out there and see you next time.